Good afternoon, and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Powered Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Cobb. As you probably know, the goal of Power for the People is to help you understand the energy policies, technology, solutions that are relevant in your life and potentially for your home and transportation, with the goal to help you reduce your energy costs and, uh, if it matters to you, to reduce your impact on the environment and on the climate. And all of those matter to me, as uh, regular listeners know. My guest today is David Gibson, the Director of Energy at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. And topics that he has mentioned to me that he'd like to cover. And so just to give you a heads up, uh, listeners, uh, one is steps to transition any home or building off of fossil fuels. Uh, regular listeners know that I did that on my house in 2017. Uh, number two would be non-energy benefits, uh, air quality, uh, mold, moisture, uh, rot and mold, that sort of thing. Uh, and a big one is the comfort of the occupants. Uh, you know, I did a significant uh, net zero energy project a number of years ago uh, over in uh, uh, in the White Mountain area. And, uh, yes, the building is uh, generating more electricity than uh, than it uh, than it needs. But the the most rewarding thing was that the staff of the building said, my God, it's so comfortable here. We don't have to wear sweaters all winter long. And so uh, occupant com- comfort is a big part of the uh, the success. Uh, and then uh, if we have time, David uh, would like to talk about careers and training opportunities, not something that we really focused a lot, a, a lot on in this in this uh, program, uh, but uh, certainly a great idea. So these are all certainly relevant to homeowners, and they're, only, they're relevant to anybody who, who uh, has a structure. I mean, if a, a hotel uh, manager or owner uh, certainly should be paying attention to these sorts of things. But first, as I tend to do, uh, a few headlines that have caught my attention about energy issues. Uh, and one, this, uh, this, this, uh, there's advertisements about this, but frankly, I'm getting daily things in the mail from natural gas suppliers and natural gas appliance dealers, uh, talking about, uh, discounts that they have and reasons why you should go with natural gas. And I just want to point out a few reasons why they're doing that right now to make sure that you're thinking about that. So number one, uh, recent studies, and, and I certainly get lots of this in my internet feed, show that the indoor air quality of homes uh, is that have natural gas appliances or boilers. Uh, the air, indoor air quality is kind of dismal. There's methane in the air, there's CO2, there's carbon monoxide, uh, and it re- results in asthma and allergies and other ailments. Uh, and so there's uh, that's just, uh, just a reality. Uh, you may know I hope everybody knows that methane is actually 52 times more potent as a greenhouse gas as than CO2. So if that's important to you, uh, keep in mind that that's what uh, leaks out of appliances and pipelines. Uh, homes with natural gas explode every now and then. We've got a couple of them in this uh, state that have, and we had an entire neighborhood in Massachusetts uh, blow up uh, a few years ago. Uh, and then the the final thing is related to their advertising and discounts is that a number of cities in the U.S. have and, and in the country around the world have banned natural gas in new construction, natural gas uh, heat and natural gas appliances uh, for all those reasons I just mentioned. Uh, and the industry is no doubt worried that that sort of thing could be coming from Maine. 
So just uh, to make sure that you understand why you're seeing advertising like that. Uh, related, in a sense, uh, I saw that uh, Honda is going to stop making gasoline lawnmowers in September. Uh, and I'll just comment that I've used battery electric lawnmowers since the mid-1990s because they're, they were easier to start back then. Uh, they still are. And they actually start in the spring before you do all the things that you need to do to a gas lawnmower. There's no gasoline. There's no oil. There's no spark plugs to change and no air pollution associated with that. And uh, so, yes, if you own 50 acres, maybe you can't go to a battery electric uh, mower at this point. But for anything in town, I think battery electric mowers are things that you should think about. Uh, and then related to that, the American Lung Association has been putting out things uh, that uh, the the air quality, the outdoor air quality improvements of going to electric vehicles is actually something that they can measure now. Uh, and I actually got one for Maine and got one for um, like Montana or something. I don't know why that came in my in my Internet feed. Um, but uh, that is something to consider and recognizing that that uh, the Biden uh, infra, uh, uh, recent uh, infrastructure act includes four hundred million dollars for electric school buses. And that's, you know, electric school buses and electric uh, postal uh, vehicles are kind of the perfect opportunity for electric because you know how far they're going to drive. You're not trying to dive, drive to Denver in them where you need to recharge a few times. Uh, and it just makes sense. And so we've seen some electric school buses being purchased here in the state of Maine and the Inflation Reduction Act is going to incentivize more of those. So that's outdoor air quality in particular. Uh, but because uh, David suggested looking at non-energy uh, items, that relate to energy efficiency. Let's see if we can transition here, David. Uh, this feels a little bit awkward, but maybe it's a bit of a transition to indoor air quality. Again, one of your bullets was the non-energy advantages of getting off of fossil fuels. Let's start with indoor air quality and then uh, and then go from there. So, so David Gibson, Director of Energy at College Atlantic. Thanks for being on, David. Yeah, thanks for having me today, Steve. And it's interesting, you've, you've mentioned half a dozen things already that I could uh, speak to. Uh, but in terms of air quality, um, combustion appliances, um, all of all of the combustion, uh, all of the emissions from combustion appliances are harmful to breathe in. Um, and it's very common for furnaces and stoves uh, and uh, boilers to backdraft into the home or to have spillage where you're you're getting those emissions directly backdrafted into the house. Um, and those can include carbon monoxide, uh, nitrous oxides, a, a whole array of different chemical compounds, um, sulfur oxides and things like that, that you, you really don't want to be breathing in. And uh, as you point out, uh, you really don't want to be emitting those into the atmosphere and contributing to air pollution either. Uh, and so um, that that's just one of the things that an energy auditor will identify and and ensure that your appliances are properly venting to outside and that they're and that they have good com efficient combustion if if you are continuing to burn any fossil fuels or or even wood products you you want to make sure that it's burning efficiently uh, so that you're you're not creating excess carbon monoxide or or other combustion byproducts um so that's just one of the the many benefits of of properly doing energy improvements to your home, and ideally you can eliminate the fossil fuel combustion altogether. 
Um, like you, I've, I've also transitioned my house off of fossil fuels. Um, we have heat pumps and a heat pump water heater and we've re-insulated the house and, um, we, we didn't remove the boiler, but I've, I've turned it on about once every other year just to make sure it still works. And otherwise haven't, haven't run the boiler at all. Um, and that's in a 1828 post and beam farmhouse. Um, I figure if, if you can do it in a 200 year old home in mid coast Maine, that any, home any building can be transitioned off of fossil fuels today uh, and of course you're working with some old buildings there at college of the atlantic too as we're going to talk about here in a few minutes uh, yeah. and, and thank you for the prompt on not removing the boiler so i removed the boiler because frankly i you know i'd gone a year i didn't need it uh, you know clearly i didn't need it but one thing that i've said numerous times on this program is if you've got an old uh let's call it an inefficient boiler uh don't call up your oil dealer and say geez, what should I do? Because you kind of know what they're going to tell you. Uh, leave it in and install heat pumps. And in the event that uh, that it goes to, to 20 below on the rare occasion when it does, and maybe you need your boiler for a few days. So what if it's inefficient? You know, use it and, and you know, use it for comfort. So, uh, so I, you know, again, I took mine out for a very specific reason. I wanted the space. It was god awful noisy. I didn't need it anymore. But in general, I advise people to leave uh, old ones in there and do the conversion to electric. So thanks for that. Yeah. Prompt. And and it, it, what's interesting is it may also be beneficial for the grid. Um, as we transition to heat pumps and electrify more of our heating loads, um, peak demand is shifting from summertime to wintertime in the Northeast. And it's expected that the, the winter peaks on the grid are, are going to be the dominant force uh, in the next several years. Um, as we as we continue to electrify our heating and transportation systems. And when you get into times of peak demand on the grid, that's when they're running the dirtiest, the oldest and dirtiest uh, power plants. And so it's much more efficient to have a boiler running in your house that's hopefully 80% efficient or more versus running a power plant that's about 40% efficient where burning oil, creating the electricity in order to power your heat pump uh, on those super cold days. Um, and so there's probably going to be times over the next decade until they've built out the grid of the future, uh, where it'll actually be beneficial for some of us to be running oil heating on the coldest days of the year to help decrease the peak demand on the grid. That's such a good point. No question about it. And, and I was thinking back to, uh, you know, what I said, methane, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Uh, as things that are coming out of appliances that you burn in your home. And I kind of just mentioned carbon monoxide, but let's remember people die every year from carbon monoxide from, uh, from, uh, fossil fuel combustion that isn't, uh, efficient or is, is, uh, isn't ventilated properly. So yeah. Uh, and, uh, and even when it doesn't kill you, carbon monoxide, uh, at low levels, at, at surprisingly low levels, uh, causes symptoms, very flu-like symptoms. And so people that feel nausea or have headaches or like a whole array of different symptoms at home, uh, could be affected by carbon monoxide or other indoor air pollutants. Mm -hmm. And so, and so it's interesting. Um, you know, if, if you feel like you're sick when you're in a particular building and it could be your house or it could be a workplace or, you know, the, any other, uh, building that you go into regularly, you know, if if you notice that your symptoms are associated with spending time inside a building, um, it's it's very worthwhile to you know assess the indoor air quality um, because it, you know it could be uh, carbon monoxide or other um, combustion gases 
or it could be mold or mildew or other uh, other indoor air pollutants, um, all of which can help be addressed through energy improvements if they're if they're done right and and done by a, a qualified professional. Yeah, that's that's so true. And and the other thing that uh, that I'm seeing more research in my internet feed on is is developmental really uh, learning disabilities for kids that live in homes that have uh, compromised air quality due to fossil fuel combustion or leaking pipes, as the case may be. And uh, that's, uh, that potentially is a, is a lifetime issue. So, uh, wow. So, wow, I hadn't seen that yet. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely true. No question about it. Well, so, so David, we launched right into uh, a transition from some of the things that I led off with, but uh, let's just back up for a second. Uh, again, you're the director of energy uh, at uh, College of Atlantic. Uh, tell me how you got there and what your, uh, what your, what your background is to get there and, and however else you might like to, uh, leave the listeners knowing who you are. Sure. Um, so I've been at the college for almost two years now. I started in, uh, August of 2021. Uh, but I started out, let's see, I went to, well, I grew up in Maine. Um, so I grew up in Freiburg and went to Freiburg Academy. And then I attended Worcester Polytechnic Institute and graduated with a degree in civil and environmental engineering. Um, from there, I went into construction management for a few years, working on large scale construction projects. Um, one of the first projects I was on was a LEED certified building. We actually achieved LEED gold on the project. And during that process, I got, I, I studied and took the LEED test and became a LEED accredited professional. That's what the, U.S. Green Building Council, their leadership in energy and environmental design certification. Um, and in that process, one of the things that really stood out to me uh, was that they were saying, and this was back in 2007, that in 2050, 80% of the buildings that we use are buildings that already exist today. And so that underscores the importance of fixing our existing buildings, where if every new building built were lead platinum or we're net zero energy, we still wouldn't fix our addiction to fossil fuels and the and the emissions from our building sector without fixing all of the existing building stock. Um, and the other thing that it talked about was uh, the effect that occupants have on the ener- energy use and emissions of buildings. And they they did studies of prior lead certified buildings and found that some of them that were designed to be 30% more efficient than code were actually far less efficient and were using more energy than other buildings that weren't meeting any particular green standard. Um, and they really found that, that the occupants have a tremendous effect. Uh, and so if you, if you have a super efficient building and you're turning up the thermostat too high and then opening windows to cool off and, and doing stuff like that, you can waste an enormous amount of energy. Uh, and that really led me to to recognize the importance of education and teaching people how to be efficient energy users, how to be efficient homeowners. Uh, and so that led to a pretty big career transition where I left construction management and became an AmeriCorps volunteer working for a nonprofit in Reno, Nevada, teaching middle school and high school students about energy efficiency and how to make their homes and their schools more efficient. And so with with that, uh, we were working with with teachers and at first we were training we were just working in the classroom and doing energy assessments of schools and leading students on tours of the boiler room uh crazy field trip uh most students haven't been inside their boiler room uh, <laughs> and so uh we 
And then we transitioned to training teachers and doing professional development workshops for how teachers can better teach about energy efficiency um, and, and how homes and schools use energy. Uh, and I worked for the nonprofit for five years. Um, they're called Envirolution and they're based in, in Reno, like I said. Uh, and then I worked for the Nevada Governor's Office of Energy, where I was the energy efficiency specialist and was leading the implementation of efficiency programs statewide in Nevada. Um, and so while I was there, we, we did programs with low income seniors, helping them to finance uh, insulation and, uh, energy efficiency projects, and then also working with cities, counties, and school districts to finance um, through, a, through a process called energy saving performance contracting, financing uh, major renovations to their to their buildings. Uh, and in the time in the two years that I was at the energy office, we put together about $50 million in, in those self-funded projects uh, with different mostly with different school districts and then with higher education uh, uh, like the Western Nevada College and Southern Nevada Community College and organizations like that. Uh, I left the governor's energy office uh, to do some private consulting for a little while and also to start a nonprofit organization that was pushing for 100% clean energy in Nevada, trying to urge the legislature to take bolder action. Um, at the time, they were trying to extend the renewable portfolio standard and and get to, I forget, a, an additional 20% renewable energy by 2030 or something like that. And I was pushing for them to, you know, set a timeline to get to 100% renewable energy. You know, even if it's 2050, the utilities are building things out on a 20 or 30 year timeframe. And so if you tell them where they need to be in 20 years, then that prevents them from building more fossil fuel infrastructure and more natural gas power plants and things because they know that they're not going to be able to use them for the entire useful life. Um, and I think the the biggest success that I had uh, in, in Nevada legislatively was helping to pass a green bank bill to finance efficiency and clean energy, um, creating uh, a new entity within the state called the, the Nevada Clean Energy Fund, um, which it it's taken several years for them to get up and off the ground. Uh, but now with, uh, recent legislation last year, the inflation reduction act that funded the federal green bank that provides a lot of additional funding to smaller green banks, like the, uh, Nevada clean energy fund and the main clean energy and sustainability accelerator here in, in Maine. Um, so then in 2017, my wife and I moved back to Maine. Um, and I worked for Revision Energy for three years, designing solar and heat pump systems um, and helping inform uh, residents across, well, across the mid-coast area anyway, uh, how to transition their homes off of fossil fuels and making recommendations for, for heat pumps and solar. And very, very often I was directing people towards uh, insulation contractors because it doesn't make sense to put heat pumps into an, a poorly insulated house. And so trying to encourage them to do the insulation work for first to air seal and insulate uh, so that the heat pump can actually offset their usage rather than, you know, just being a commodity room heater is basically all they become when you have a really leaky, inefficient, drafty house. Well, you could imagine somebody complaining that heat pumps don't work when they're in a situation like that. And that's, mm -hmm. that's not a good thing, no matter what. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, uh, two years ago, I transitioned to College of the Atlantic, um, where 
my primary role is transitioning the college off of fossil fuels by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, and I teach half time. And so most of my classes, uh, I'm finding different ways to engage students in the process of transitioning away from fossil fuels. Um, and right now I'm teaching a building science and energy auditing class where I'm, I'm training the students how to do energy audits. And then they're doing energy audits of buildings of their choice. Some of those are on campus. Some are off campus housing. One of them did an energy audit for one of our faculty members. So, you know, trying to show them the process and, and teach them some useful skills that whether they get into the energy industry or, you know, just as a future homeowner, really beneficial to understand building science and, and how our homes work. Mm -hmm. Well, you are a force to be reckoned with. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to ask you here in just a second, uh, to, uh, to give us a, a quick snapshot of, of what you've done with the legislature here in Maine, uh, which, uh, I, I'm aware of the big picture, but not the specific details. Uh, but let me just remind everybody that you're listening for, to Power for the People here on WERU, uh, uh, FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And uh, the guest that you are listening to is David Gibson, who is the director of energy at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. Uh, and again, a force to be reckoned with uh, increasingly learning. So I, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I am aware of David because we are both members of the Green Campus Coalition of Maine, which is the coalition, the, the group of sustainability directors at various campuses. Um, uh, I was the former sustainability director uh, at Unity College, which is why I'm still uh, loosely affiliated with that group. Um, and so, but David, David and I met, I think for the first time, actually, uh, I guess the only time at an energy show that you were at in Portland six or eight weeks ago. And uh, that resulted in this, uh, in this invitation. So uh, since I just mentioned it, though, tell me, tell me about your, your actions with the legislature here in Maine. Yeah, so um, primarily I've engaged with the legislature as a volunteer. Um, I serve on the executive committee for the Sierra Club Maine. Um, and so I've volunteered with the Sierra Club's legislative committee. Um, and I was particularly active in the 2021 legislative session uh, where I was leading efforts um, with a, a coalition uh, on LD 1659, which created the main clean energy and sustainability accelerator, essentially a state level green bank to help finance efficiency and clean energy improvements. Um, and that legislation created it as a new wing or a new entity under Efficiency Maine. So it's under the umbrella of Efficiency Maine, and they've now hired someone um, who is who's leading the, the clean energy and sustainability accelerator. Um, and then I also led efforts, um, again, with a variety of other nonprofits, including Maine Youth for Climate Justice and 350.org um, and, and a bunch of other groups. Um, I did most of the technical research relating to divesting the Maine public employee retirement system from fossil fuels. Uh, there was legislation, LD99, um, that required Maine PERS and the state treasurer to divest to divest from fossil fuels. Um, and I worked with the bill sponsor, Maggie O'Neill, to uh, draft an amendment to that bill that expanded it. It was written in a way that it would only divest from publicly traded companies, the, the 200 largest publicly traded companies with fossil, the most fossil fuel reserves. Um, and 
what I what I identified in doing research of, main, of the holdings of the main per system is that most of their fossil fuel holdings were in the private sector in private equity funds. Um, and there's a lot of companies that are entirely engaged in the fossil fuel industry that don't actually own reserves. So companies like Halliburton, um, that are oil field services companies that their, their entire focus is on providing, uh, pipes and support to the oil fields, but they don't actually own any of the reserves in the ground. Mm. Um, and so with the amendment that I, um, that I helped to draft, we expanded the scope of the divestment from what Maine PERS had identified as about $65 million in publicly traded companies to $1.3 billion, the full scope of their investments in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and now we're following up with them, uh, trying to get them to actually follow through on that. Uh, it took about a year for them to have, they, they hired a consultant to identify, you know, what their exposure is to fossil fuels and steps they could take. Um, and now they're kind of stonewalling and delaying taking action on that. Um, but one of the things that I've identified is that if they had divested, like clearly we, we don't know where the market will go with certainty. I think you and I both know that the fossil fuel industry, the days are numbered and, you know, we may not put all the fossil fuel industry out of business in the next decade, but to achieve the climate goals that the country and the United Nations have committed to the fossil fuel industry has to go away in the next 30 years. Mm. And, uh, and so like clearly you're not going to make money if businesses go under, if they go bankrupt. Uh, but even looking backwards at the last 10 years, um, the fossil fuel industry has basically, uh, held stable over the last decade where the rest of the market has, has more than doubled in value. Um, and so if they had fully divested 10 years ago from their fossil fuel holdings, they'd have somewhere between a billion and a half and $2 billion more in their portfolio right now um, than they currently do. That's referring and to PERS? That's that's referring to main PERS. Really? Okay. And so uh, to me, that's all the evidence you need. Like, forget about the climate impacts or where you stand on fossil fuels. Like, the, the future of of that industry certainly is not better than the last 10 years uh, and it, they're, they're losing money and really they're losing money hand over fist on that, uh, which is, is really sad, especially, uh, a lot of my family, my brother's a teacher, my parents are both teachers and, you know, that's their retirement fund that is, you know, slowly being lost to, um, these poor investments. And, and we know that there's not any fossil fuel industry in Maine. So we know that all of these investments, like what little they're doing economically, they're creating jobs in other places, not here in the state. And they could do a lot more investing in efficiency and renewable energy projects here in Maine um, that would actually create jobs in the state and help um, homeowners and taxpayers across Maine. Well, in fact, not only are there no uh, jobs uh, in, uh, in, in industry in Maine, but we send, depending on whose number you want to look at, four to eight billion dollars a year out of state. For fossil yep. fuel interests, uh, when we could be we could be doing it here, you know, people uh, most people are are familiar with the concept of peak oil, uh, mm -hmm. and we've now transitioned to the concept of peak oil demand, and that's that's a significant difference and a, a, a different way to look at the economics of what ultimately to follow up on your point, and this is something that I do cover in a couple of my classes, the concept of stranded assets. And uh, oops, stranded oil assets are not going to be a good thing there for the companies that uh, that have them. 
So uh, did LD99 pass? Yeah, so it passed the legislature. Um, but there's like like most legislation, there's a loophole in it, and they are required to divest uh, within their fiduciary duty. And so they're saying they're essentially saying right now, oh, it's not in our fiduciary duty to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, and it's a it's a tough argument to make, especially as someone that you know doesn't have the financial credentials or you know the 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 same level of training in financial markets and that sort of thing that they do. You know, it's hard to fight them on the technical side of it. Uh, but you know, my 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 understanding of it and my assessment of their investments it makes it pretty clear that uh, they've been losing money on the fossil fuel industry and that it's really you know in their fiduciary duty to divest from fossil fuels because they will make more money for their participants right well when when we when we get to the the point of stranded assets i mean coal uh is a stranded asset for everywhere except in china um then then that uh, fiduciary duty will will evolve through time shall we mm-hmm. shall we say yeah and i mean one of the one of the things that i found uh is that they've invested in coal in australia as recently as 2019 and so, australia makes a big deal out of some of the things that they're doing but they're also a leader in coal export and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately it's just the reality of where we're at let yeah. me just uh, come back to just one thing that uh, you sent me some information on since we were just talking about non-energy benefits and comfort for the occupants uh, tell us a little bit about your your uh, window dressers uh, enterprise that you had there. Yeah. So um, as you and your listeners are probably familiar with, Window Dressers is a nonprofit that was founded in the Rockland area probably 10 or 15 years ago now. Something like that. And Window Dressers has come up as a side comment a few times in this program, but I don't know that, that listeners are going to be overly familiar with it, which is why I wanted to make sure that we mentioned it. Yeah. So essentially a window dresser is an insulated window insert that you, that you build and then it goes on the inside of your window. And, um, it's two layers of a heavy duty saran wrap type plastic wrapped around a pine frame. Um, and so basically you're adding a double paned window on the inside of your existing window. Uh, and so for our house, we've installed them in double paned windows and have noticed a tremendous difference. You know, even with what's, you know, a decent window, uh, but double pane windows often on a really cold day in January will have frost on the inside of the window showing you that the inside of the glass is below freezing. Uh, and with the window dressers, it's warm to the touch. Um, and on the COA campus, um, a number of our older buildings, especially the historic buildings we have on campus still have single pane windows. Uh, and so, um, I really thought it was important to build window dressers for for all of those older single pane windows. Um, and we hosted a workshop on campus in in the fall. Um, and I think we had over 80 people volunteer over the course of a week, mostly students, faculty and staff, but then also some some outside community members as well. And we built over 300 insulating window inserts in that time. Uh, and for for our buildings i prioritize the single like i said the single pane windows and then we put them in the double pane windows in one of our dorms uh and in in one of the in one of the dorms that has single pane windows i was talking with a student uh and she said that she had taken hers out in january just to see if it was doing anything and it felt like opening the refrigerator door 
And so that's, that's the difference that it makes is, you know, essentially having a warm surface against the room versus ice cold glass. And so, do they hold up in dorms in, you know, dorm type setting? Uh, some better than others. We, we've definitely had a, a couple casualties. Uh, but for the most part, they, they, as, as we've been taking them out this spring, uh, most of them are in pretty good shape. Um, there's definitely a few that have been punctured. I know in one building, there was so much air leakage around the window that the window dresser got blown entirely out of the window and it hit something sharp and got punctured. Um, and so in some of the buildings, we've actually had to put like thumbtacks or little wooden blocks in front of the window dressers to hold them in place. Um, but that it, it really shows the added benefit of their blocking that much air leakage around the edges of the window. Uh, in addition to, you know, preventing the conduction out through the single pane of glass that's right. there. Um, so, so yeah, should, they've made a big difference. Anybody should, uh, you know, feel free to Google window dressers if you are interested in the type of thing that we're talking about here. Yeah. And the, and, and the nonprofit window dressers, they host community builds all over the state. Right. Um, and it's super low cost. Uh, basically you're paying for the materials and then they require you to volunteer, um, in order to have them for your house. And so it's an entirely community oriented volunteer event. And, and frankly, the builds are a lot of fun. Um, as long as you're not the one managing it and coordinating all the volunteers, <laughs> like I was this fall, uh, which got a little stressful. Uh, but generally it's a lot of fun. It's a great community event. And, you know, you meet a bunch of people who are all there for the same purpose to help reduce energy and make their help reduce energy loss and make their homes more comfortable. Right. Um, so I highly recommend window dressers. Let's uh, let's turn use that as a transition to uh, kind of through insulation, if you will. Uh, one of the challenges uh, of retrofitting homes is that uh, older homes don't have much for insulation. Uh, mine is a 1948 house, uh, and what I chose to do, and we can talk about specific insulation here in a few minutes as we make the transition into how to, to transition your home. Uh, dealing with walls is a major challenge. Uh, and so what I chose to do was to insulate my attic and spray foam my basement so I don't have heat going out the top and I don't have cold coming in the bottom. Uh, and that made a huge difference, even though I didn't do anything to my, to my walls. But if you, if you added window dressers, uh, to your windows, uh, that's going to keep the drafts down. And that combination of things is going to make a big difference. And so, you know, you don't have to tear your building apart and to insulate the walls. Uh, I would, I would have that be one of the last steps. I would do uh, relative to uh, to making things tighter and, and having them work better. Yeah, anyway, so depending so depending on what's currently in the walls. Well, that's um, right. Yeah, if there's no insulation at all, um, and again, it depends on the age of the house. You know, old plaster walls. Sometimes there's not much of a cavity. You can't even get a tube inside it to to blow cellulose in. Uh, but if you have two by four construction and there's not currently insulation, it's relatively easy to blow dense pack cellulose into the walls. Um, and doing that either from the inside or the outside, uh, to at least fill the walls with something. But w- when there's fiberglass bats in the walls that, you know, kind of leaky, aren't ideal, like there's not a lot you can do. Some, some contractors will still blow cellulose in and dense pack and just kind of push the fiberglass out of the way. Um, but walls are tricky. And, and if all you have is a two by four wall, even if there's insulation in that cavity, you know, it's, it's, not up to current code. Um, and, uh, you know, really you want more insulation than that. Right. I mean, most older homes are going to have bat insulation in them. And, and of course, as I always say in this program, that's spelled B-A-D. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's a quickie on the insulation thing. Let's, let's talk about transitioning to, uh, to all electric, uh, which is uh, what we both done in our own homes and you are working on down at uh, COA in an impressive way. So, uh, you mentioned and no surprise heat pumps and hybrid hot water heaters, which are also heat pumps are two uh, of the key things. Tell us what you've done at, at COA, and it, I gather you've got some buildings that COA now owns that are actually off campus, perhaps. So tell tell us a little bit about all of that. Yeah, so um, I started in August of 2021, and I think it was September of 2021. The college purchased 12 units of housing in the community, um, primarily so that we can offer year-round housing to our students. We have a lot of students that live off campus, um, and Bar Harbor is a very tourist driven town and the summer tourist season has gotten longer and longer and so in the fall shoulder season and then in the spring um a lot of our students were you know were kind of out of housing where when they're renting in the community and people are you know transitioning to a longer and longer uh short-term rental season and doing summer weekly rentals and stuff like that uh and so the college chose to purchase 12 units that historically students had rented uh because we we weren't sure what the future of those was if a if a new owner would even rent them to COA students at all. Uh, and as the owners of them, we can determine the rental, the, the length of the rental time so that students have them for the entire school year. Um, and with those 12 units of housing, um, we we hired contractors. And so we worked with Penobscot Home Performance to do the insulation work. And we worked with Mac heat pumps to install the heat pumps. And then, uh, Northeast plumbing and heating is, uh, one of the bigger plumbing outfits on MDI. Um, and they installed the heat pump water heaters. Uh, and, and most of those, we did exactly what you just described. We, uh, added cellulose in the attic and we did spray foam in the basements for the ones that had them. There were a couple that had like weird crawl space areas or things that, you know, some homes are more complex than others, uh, but for the most part, we were blowing in 24 inches of cellulose into the attics to get them up to R80. That was after we did all the air sealing around the electrical penetrations, the tops of the walls and, and all that sort of stuff. As as I'm sure you know, Steve, it's so important to air seal before adding new insulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Penobscot Home Performance did a great job with all of that. Uh, and then we, we in, in most of the uh houses that have basement areas we chose to do three inches of spray foam um and we've been specifying i think it's required by state law now um, but we've been specifying the the latest generation the hfo spray foam that has a much lower global warming potential than the than the prior generations of spray foam um it's depending on what manufacturer you look at it's somewhere between a global global warming potential of one and five where the older blowing agents were 1,400 or 1,500 times worse than CO2 in terms of the global warming impact. So, you know, a, a several hundred or possibly a thousandfold better than, than the older ones. Um, and because COA, you know, is an institution and we plan to own our buildings for, you know, the, the college has been around for 50 years now, and, you know, we intend to own these buildings for at least another 50 years, generally, uh, trying to, uh, you know, look at the long-term energy savings, doing an extra inch of spray foam in basement areas, 
doing an extra eight inches or so of cellulose in an attic, uh, going from, I, I think most people are installing R50 to R60 um, in an attic area. And we've chosen to do 24 inches to get up to R80 uh, because we know that it'll pay for itself over time. Mm-hmm. And and it costs so much money to get an insulation contractor out. And you know most of the cost is getting them there and getting the equipment there that once you have them, the incremental cost of adding an extra six inches of cellulose is super minimal. Right. Uh, and so trying to, you know, exceed the current code requirements so that we're saving as much energy in the long term as we can. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that we've really been focused on is, you know, let's, let's do it right, you know, and let's do it once and, and not have to come back and, and fix these buildings again. Um, especially with that off campus housing that we purchased. We removed a lot of old fiberglass bats. We found a lot of wires that had been chewed on by rodents. And uh, just, I mean, the ceilings that were all full of air leaks. And, you know, you can see the lights down below when you're up in the attic through through various holes and stuff like that. Chimney chases where there's just a two or three inch gap all the way around the chimney that's, you know, letting warm air up and out. And so sealing all that stuff up and then and then blowing a nice layer of cellulose over the top makes just such a tremendous difference. Yeah, the net zero energy project that I did over in New Hampshire, we used two inches of expanding uh, closed cell foam and then went to R90 with cellulose above that. Oh, wow. so we, got, we got good air sealing uh, and then we had all sorts of, uh, of ins- uh, R value above that. And, and uh, that, that's the building in particular where the, uh, the occupant said, it's just, it's so comfortable here. We, we can't believe the difference. So that uh, that makes a, a ton of sense certainly and so so in with those examples after you did the the insulating and air sealing uh how did you go about deciding uh where and how much to put in for heat pumps Yeah I mean um I I leaned heavily on the 3 years experience I had designing heat pump systems with revision energy and so like a lot of times you know it depends on the layout of a building um, but, uh, you know, generally putting one in a common area and then, you know, adding a second and sometimes a third unit, depending on the layout, just like, is heat going to distribute around in the house or not? Uh, but you don't need, a, generally, you don't need a heat pump in every room. Mm, right. Um, and, and the putting in too many, having it be overkill, you're just wasting money up front on those additional systems. And then you're going to end up using more energy in the end. Um, if you're, if your exterior shell of the building, if your building envelope is, is tight and is well insulated, the heat's going to move around inside. Um, and so, you know, you can have a heat pump in the living room and the heat's going to travel to your bedroom. If it, you know, depending on the layout of the house, uh, the heat will move around. And so, you know, trying to minimize the number of heat pumps, but, you know, put in what was necessary for each of the buildings. So generally, most of those we we put in two heat pumps you know typically if it's a multi-story building at least one upstairs and one downstairs um especially and bar harbor is cooler than a lot of maine but it's still getting hotter in the summertime and people are more and more wanting air conditioning and so you know having that upstairs because the the cold air isn't going to travel up from downstairs the way that that heat will in the in the winter well i think my approach would be in uh, you know, in a generic cases, you want a heat pump in the space where you spend a lot of time, probably the living room. Uh, you know, in my place, I've got 
I've got a heat pump in the dining room and in the living room, which are both north facing rooms. But mm-hmm. I didn't want I didn't didn't matter to me if it was in the kitchen because I'm moving around in the kitchen and, and uh, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. The other thing and you just you touched on people, people are certainly familiar with the fact that heat rises, but they sometimes forget that a heat pump can heat the they push the heat in a different direction and serve as an AC unit. Well, AC, uh, cool air sinks. And so if you've got a heat pump in a living room that uh where you want to be warm in the wintertime and your adjoining room is a bedroom, well, the cool air is going to go in the summertime is going to go into the bedroom. So people need to keep that that sort of thing in mind. Yeah. And the the big thing is, you know, whether you keep doors open or closed and the heat moves around really well if the doors are open. And what I've seen, because we have a guest bedroom that we keep typically keep the door closed just to keep the cat out of the, out of it. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the middle of January, after having that door closed for the month, it was about 10 degrees cooler on the other side of that door. So if it's 68 in the living room, 58 in that bedroom, after a month of having the door closed, like, you know, that's still a reasonable temperature. And you know, personally, I prefer to sleep in a cooler room. Uh, and so like that can be fine, but different people have different temperature preferences. And, um, and so that always gets interesting. All right. So we're down uh, maybe a dozen minutes here uh, for the program. And so you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And the guest is David Gibson, Director of Energy at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, who's been there a couple of years, but has extensive experience in his background and education in his background in the private sector and with nonprofits and even with the legislature. And uh, so I'm learning a number of things here that I did not know about David before. Uh, how about hybrid hot water heaters? What, uh, what what have you done with those and how have you made those decisions? Yeah. Um, I mean, typically for a single family type house, um, a 60 gallon heat pump water heater is sufficient. Um, one of the things that we've done is we've installed low flow shower heads in all the housing that COA owns. And so transitioning from a, a standard shower head is two and a half gallons a minute. Um, low flow ones that there's some variation, but the ones that we installed were about a gallon and a half a minute. And so for every minute that someone's in the shower, you're saving a gallon of water. Um, and I know 10 or 15 years ago, there were some really bad low flow shower heads. I've, I've tried a lot of them over the years. Uh, but the newer ones work really well. And so we put those in all the dorms on campus and all of the off campus housing that the college owns. Uh, and so, you know, in theory, that reduces the hot water usage by 30 to 40 percent, you know, depending on how much is going towards showers versus kitchen or hand washing or that sort of thing. Uh, but that was the first step that we made. Uh, and then and then typically for like a single family type house where there's four to five people living in it, we, we'd put in a 60 gallon heat pump water heater. There's a there's a couple buildings that have more people living in them, like in the seven to 10 person range where we a couple places where they had an existing electric water heater and so basically we set it up so that the heat pump water heater is feeding into the electric one and is set at a higher temperature and so as long as the heat pump is keeping up with the demand it's providing all of the hot water and then but and the second tank is just providing hot water storage Mm -hmm. um but then either one of those will kick into electric mode if it's not keeping up uh, and so if, if the heat pump water heater can't keep up with the demand, if there's a lot of showers in a row or something like that, then, then it'll just kick into electric. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that essentially doubles the storage capacity and it's a lot cheaper to use. Uh, I mean, 
in one of the buildings, the, the existing electric water heater was only two years old. Um, so there's no need to throw that away. You can use that and, and use it as additional hot water storage. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's, that's a clever way to do it. And do you tend to run the hybrid, the hybrid hot water heaters uh, in, uh, in, in heat pump mode only or in uh, hybrid mode? It depends on the building. Um, there's most of them are in basements that are now insulated. And so if you've got a basement that's, that's been spray foamed and is insulated, they can stay in heat pump mode year round. Um, there's a few that we installed where we haven't addressed the basement space yet. And so they're in hybrid mode so that when it gets cold in the basement, they'll kick over into electric and, you know, keep running. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, that's good advice on, on, um, ch- uh, tying them together like that. Um, so what about, um, and I should know the answer to this question because I actually was on your campus, uh, sometime this fall. Uh, I mean, last fall after doing a hike down at Acadia, but, uh, you've got some solar PV on some places, but tell us uh, how much you have and what percentage that it, you do and, and how you're looking at the future there. Yeah, we, um, offhand, I don't know how much solar we have. Um, we installed a pretty big array on our newest building, um, the, the Davis Center for Human Ecology, which is a 29,000 square foot academic building where, where most of our classrooms are now. Uh, and, and that array is designed to provide about 70% of the building usage over the course of the year. <clears throat> and so in the winter, we were using quite a lot of, uh, grid power. And I was looking at it last week. And, um, last week we, or a week or two ago, we hit parity and we were producing as much energy as the building was using. Um, and so I think in the summertime, we'll be overproducing a little bit. Uh, but then in the winter, we're, we're drawing from the grid on that building. Uh, and we have some smaller arrays on, in a few places. Um, several of them were built by students as, as class projects, like five to 10 years ago. Um, and then we've signed on to a solar farm that Revision Energy is building in the Hampton area. And so, um, that will, that will provide all of the electricity for our commercial buildings, for the, for the commercial accounts. Uh, and then for our, our buildings that have residential meters, um, we'll, we'll have to see where we're at and make, and make plans around that. Um, but all of our, all of our, our electricity for, for several years now, we've been purchasing renewable energy credits. So it's all considered clean energy. Uh, but we're, we're trying to transition to local renewable energy where we know that it's being produced in Maine by a local solar farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. How many, how many students do you house now at, at COA? We, we have around 350 students. Is that total, total enrollment? Or that's a, that's a total or? enrollment. And, um, there's a new, there's a new dorm on campus that's under construction that will be open hopefully by the end of this calendar year. Uh, and, and with that, I think we'll be at about three quarters capacity where we can, we can directly house three quarters of our students. Mm, okay. Um, and stepping back to the, to the heat pumps for a minute, um, the, the space heating. Um, we've done a couple of systems that, uh, are ducted heat pumps. And so we replaced the furnace entirely in a couple of buildings and put in a ducted heat pump, uh, that then blows the air through the existing ductwork. And so I'm not sure that everyone knows that that's an option now, but if you already have a, a furnace and ductwork in your house, if it's in pretty good condition or if you have it sealed and insulated, 
a ducted heat pump is a great way to then use that ductwork to distribute heat throughout the house and and get the the heat into every room. Um, and we've seen tremendous savings um, with that system, uh, in particular, where that building was using one one of those buildings was using about thirteen hundred gallons of kerosene a year, and um, now the 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 heat pump system or the the difference in the in the electric bills compared to the year before um i think we spent about $1500 on electricity over the over the course of the winter <laughs> or sorry looking at the note my notes now about $2000 in electricity but we would have spent $7500 on kerosene this winter mm. so just $5500 in savings in the first year yeah, um, it, it, there's there's no contest on on the efficiency here, no question about it. I did notice in uh, some of the information you sent me that uh, you've actually increased your square footage at uh, at the on the campus by over forty percent since you've been there, but you've decreased your CO two uh, emissions by about fifty percent, and uh, that's uh, that's a pretty impressive victory there. So so way to go on that. Yeah, thank uh, you. Um, do you have any, so we're down to about three minutes and this is just something that is on my radar screen now. And I've been kind of unable to find a lot of information on it. Any experience with heat pump clothes dryers, which are now on the market? No, I, I haven't had experience with them. And, um, I think from what I've seen, they're pretty expensive. Um, and we would, we would be looking for commercial type clothes dryers that can handle having, you know, dozens of students using them. Uh, and so I, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of research into that. Uh, yeah. The, the Where, interesting thing is that the way they work is, uh, instead of ducting your, the heat that they generates outdoors, which is not exactly what you want to do, especially in the wintertime, they reuse the heat by extracting it from the clothes that they're drying. Um, and so it, you know, it is a truly heat pump in that sense. Um, and I believe the Inflation Reduction Act has a either a tax credit or a rebate on them. But uh, last time I was on the Efficiency Main website, uh, there's nothing there about that. Um, I would love to have spent time talking about your Efficiency Main special project, but we're literally down to three minutes. And uh, you mentioned that you'd like to talk about careers and training opportunities. I've given you a full two and a half minutes to do that, <laughs> but we, we need to wrap up. Uh, give yeah. us some comments on that. Yeah, so we're partnered on a program right now that's funded by the governor's energy office. Um, they have, they have some funds for workforce development, uh, specifically for efficiency and clean energy. Um, and so for anyone that's looking to get into a job in the energy efficiency or clean energy sector, um, there's essentially free training available. Um, and there's lots of jobs out there and they're trying to, and in the efficiency sector, there's a one of the climate council's goals is to double the rate of weatherization in Maine over the next few years. And really, like to achieve our climate goals, I think it has to be more like a tenfold increase mm -hmm. in the rate of efficiency improvements. Um, and that's going to require about ten tenfold the, the number of people that are doing insulation work. Um, and so there's a lot of jobs available now and and more that will be in the future. Um, and so in terms of having, you know, a good paying job and doing something that's beneficial for the for the community, helping other people around you save money and reduce their carbon emissions, um, there's there's really nothing better. Um, mm -hmm. And it, and it mm -hmm. doesn't require a college education for people that, you know, don't want to take on the expense of college. No question about it. One of my students who uh, 
uh, graduated um, after taking my Towards a Sustainable Society course and getting certified with the Building Performance Institute and Building Science, um, got a job. She graduated from college at age 20 and got a job making $60,000 as a sustainability director. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that's out there. And, and I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of students, a lot of parents and a lot of teachers don't understand the uh, the opportunities that are coming down the line. Yeah. Well, and I are we so, out of time? Yeah, we're, we're basically out of time. So so you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And the guest has been David Gibson, Director of Energy for College of Atlantic and Bar Harbor. And as I say, at the end of all of my programs, we didn't cover nearly as much as we had on our list. Uh, and so uh, we'll see about having you back to talk a little bit more details and talk, uh, you know, specifics on some of the things that we were talking about here. So Power for the People airs the fourth Wednesday of the month in the public affairs time slot at 4 p.m. And so join us next time to learn more about energy topics, policies, technologies, and solutions for your life. I'm, I'm Steve Cowell, and we will see you next time. 